Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. I told this story a few years ago here at Restore, but um, I think it's worth telling again. Uh, This Bible right here was given to me uh, by my wife, Amy, back in May of 2007. We'd been dating for almost nine months, and she got it for me for my high school graduation present. Um, yes, that is worthy of an awe. Thank you. We would get married um, almost exactly three years to the day later in May of 2010. And right after we got married, we attended a class for newly married couples at the church that we were going to at the time. And each week in this class, we were taught a different topic by a different teacher intended to kind of help us grow in our marriage. And one week, the topic was called women's roles. And I remember sitting in that room like it was yesterday. The teacher walked in, strode up to the whiteboard, and wrote on it the following list. Sex, supper, and submission. And then she said something like, ladies, these three S's are the best way to remember your role in marriage. Like some of you, I started laughing uncomfortably. I honestly thought it was some like weird joke, right, meant to kind of break the ice and diffuse the oddness of teaching an entire lesson, an entire week on women's roles, but I was was horribly wrong. She went on to explain how these three S's work in any given marriage and and then said, and I just want you all to know, I didn't come up with this myself. I I didn't make this up. And I, I prepared for her to quote some like male chauvinist, you know, who who trademarked this 3S theology. But instead, she said, this comes straight from Scripture. This is the biblical mandate from God for wives. Then the teacher directed me, all of us, to open our Bibles. Me to open the Bible my wife had given me and then proceeded to interpret something inside of it to claim that her value was found only in sex, supper, and submission. And if, like me, you're wondering how people support blatant sexism like this biblically, it's with passages like the one we're going to look at this morning, Ephesians 5 and 6. Tragically, it does not stop at misogyny. These passages, they're often called household codes. We're going to talk about household codes more in a second. They were also used to defend American slavery. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but over half of all the published advocates for slavery, even after emancipation, were Christian pastors, quoting from Ephesians 5 and 6. Listen to this from Harvard PhD and American religious history scholar Elizabeth Jemison. She says, religious defenses of slavery largely coalesced within a broader structure of defending household order. 
Like other divinely ordained hierarchical structures of family order, the relationships of husbands to wives and parents to children, the relationships of the master to the slave, was designed for the benevolent paternalistic oversight of dependent household members. That was the argument. And this argument drew strongly upon the New Testament. As they, these pastors, defended slavery, these ministers relied on antebellum Americans' acceptance of marriage and family hierarchies. Slavery, they conceded, served the best interests of both slaves and slaveholders, just as marriage allowed husbands to care for their wives. So here's my question for us this morning. Here's my question for Christians everywhere. Does this book tell the story of a God who came to set humanity free from slavery, or does this book tell the story of a God who encourages it? Because it cannot tell both stories. It cannot tell both stories. Is this a book that advocates for the oppression of women, or does it call for the equality of all people found in Jesus Christ? Because, my friends, it cannot be both. It simply cannot be both. We must choose. Because if we say this book advocates for the life-giving, freedom-providing person and work of Jesus Christ, everything we read inside of it must be understood through that lens. This is the purpose of our year in the story. If you've been here over the past few months, you know we've been doing this thing called a year in the story that we began back in August of 2018. We desired and set out to spend a year exploring God's great story as told in the Bible and our place in it. And this comes from a conviction that we firmly believe the Bible is best understood through this unifying story that it is telling and through the themes that run throughout it. This understanding prevents us from using the Bible to support things that God detests, like slavery and oppression. We must filter every book, every chapter, every verse through this unifying story God is telling and through the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Christians believe and have always believed that God came down, put on flesh as Jesus and represented the very personhood, the characteristics of who God is here on earth. One of my favorite scholars says it's not so much that Jesus is like God, but that God is like Jesus. When we look at Jesus, that is the clearest picture we have of who God is and what his character is like. And looking at scripture through that understanding is our only hope of handling the Bible in a way that honors God and and honors humanity. When they asked Jesus, God in the flesh, when he was here on earth, what the most important law was, the most important thing that they could know and do, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. If there is a Bible verse that seemingly instructs us to do something contradictory to loving God and loving people, we have misread, misunderstood, or misapplied it. It's that simple. They ask Jesus, what's most important? Love God, love people. If there's something in his book that directs us to do something other than that, we have understood it incorrectly. As I said a moment ago, this is especially important when we come across passages like the one we are going to look at today. 
We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to start. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible or your phone. I'd love for you to turn there and follow along with us. You can take notes on the back of your um, uh, bulletin, or you can take notes on your phone, anything like that. My hope this morning is to look at this passage in particular through the lens of the first century in which it was written, through the understanding of the culture that was happening, and through the person and work of Jesus Christ to help us really understand what's going on in this often misunderstood, misquoted, and misapplied verse. We're entering the second to last week of this series on the book of Ephesians. And if you've been here over the last seven weeks or so and have some background on the part of this Bible, you know that Ephesians isn't actually a book at all. It's, it's a letter, and it was written by a pastor named Paul to a group of churches in and around the city of Ephesus that he helped start over a period of three years that he spent there. Back in week one of this series, we introduced the letter by looking at Paul, the author, and the audience, and the purpose, and also some of this first century culture, who he was writing to and what their life was like in first century Ephesus. During that introduction, I showed you all a mock-up of a first century home, and it looked like this. Do you, you guys remember this picture? Anyone that's here, raise your hand up. Do you remember this picture that we showed? Okay, this is what kind of a first century home looks like. Right? And these churches that we think about, the churches that would have gotten this letter, met almost exclusively in homes like this. So you can see the first floor there is labeled the courtyard. Then you've got some storage, the kitchen area, some area for the animals. And then up on the top is where the family who lived in the house lived. That's where they slept, that kind of thing. And so these houses, or these house churches, the way that they met is that everybody would kind of pack in on that first floor in the courtyard. They'd sit really close together if there were a large group of them. And then whoever led the church, usually the, the mother or father in the house, would sit up on top um, on that second floor and they would uh, have a passage of scripture they would discuss or they would read a letter like this one from Paul or something like that. And this first week that we talked about this, we talked a lot about what homes like this were like, but not a lot about what the people inside the homes were like. Does that make sense? To put it another way, we, we talked a lot about the house, but we didn't talk a lot about the household. Okay? You with me? We did that on purpose because I knew today's passage was coming toward the end of the series. Today we arrive at a part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians commonly called household codes. It's also found in the book of Colossians a little bit in 1 Peter. Now is it impossible? It is impossible to accurately understand these household codes without understanding how a first century Near East household worked, what it was like, right? These were codes written to specific homes. If we don't understand what those homes were like, we can't really understand the household code. And here's how they worked. Regardless of ethnicity, religion, nationality, or class, these households ascribed to a singular worldview, and that was hierarchy. Some people were in charge and some people were not. Some people gave directions, some people received them. First century household functioned kind of like modern day corporations. Family trees were like org charts, right? There was an order to everything that they did and the order determined who submitted to who, who was in charge of who. And it, honestly, it wasn't really a philosophy. This was just what they believed. It was the very nature of things. It was how things were. It was how they were created, in the Roman Empire, who are the rulers of this first century world that we're looking at, this understanding was referred to as pater familias. Today we just call it patriarchy, right? Where the free male is in charge of everything else. 
free men rule everything. Even deeper than that, in the Roman Empire, free men were the only people really considered legal citizens at all. Here's how a second century Roman lawyer named Gaius described it in his famous work called Institutes. He lived in this time and he wrote about this time, and here's what he said. The public law of Rome did not recognize women at all. Women were answerable for their misdeeds to the family judge, that is, the father or husband. Men were punished by the state, but the women had to be given over to the private jurisdiction of the family. It should be noted that nothing can be granted in the way of justice to those under power, i.e. slaves, children, and wives. For it is reasonable to conclude that since these persons can own no property, they are incompetent to claim anything in point of law. Did you follow that? Slaves, children, and wives, women, were unable to make any legal claim. They were the property of the husband and father. And this patriarch was given free reign to be judge, jury, and sometimes even executioner. Later, Gaius actually talks about documented cases of husbands legally executing their wives for everything from infidelity to drinking wine without permission. This was the world that they lived in. The free man was in charge. Does that make sense? He was judge, he was jury, he was executioner. He was the property owner of the women, the children, and the slaves. Now, Gaius didn't come up with these categories originally. They were long-standing household divisions in Greco-Roman culture, dating all the way back to like Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle and even beyond. In fact, many, maybe even most, biblical scholars believe that Paul actually borrowed much of his language about household codes from published copies of these secular Greco-Roman household codes that floated around the first century. So I bet this morning you didn't think we were going to read Gaius and Aristotle in church, but here we go. This is Aristotle from his writing called Politics. In a complete household, there are three relations, that of the master to the slave, number one, number two, that of the husband to the wife, and number three, of the parent to the child. These were the categories. These were the widely accepted household categories and divisions. Master, slave, husband, wife, parent, child. What is and ought to be the character of each of these, he asks. And he answers, the master rules over the slave despotically, the husband over the wife constitutionally. But in neither case do they take turns ruling and being ruled after the manner of constitutional states because the difference between them is permanent. The rule of the father or elder over the child is like that of a king over his subjects. The master rules over the slaves like a despot, one with absolute power who typically exercises it in a cruel or oppressive way. The husband over the wife constitutionally, which means in accordance with the natural laws of things, and the father over the child like a king over his subjects. And Aristotle's quick to point out there's no taking turns here. There's no like ruling and then being ruled and then switching off because the difference between these parties is absolute and permanent. It is the very nature of things, Aristotle says. Those are his household codes. Want to hear Paul's version from Ephesians 5 and 6? Here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Not quite as harsh as Aristotle, but strikingly similar nonetheless. Am I right? Nod with me if I'm right. 
strikingly similar. These three household relationships in which everyone submits to one man, the husband, the father, the master. These household codes had been ingrained in generation after generation for hundreds of years before Paul was even born. And if that had been all that Paul wrote when he was discussing household codes, none of it would have been surprising to his Ephesian audience. This is what they knew. This is what they had been taught. This is what they believed to be the God-ordained natural order of things. No women in the church would have heard that and been outraged. No slaves would have been offended. This was simply the way things were and the way things had always been. But if you've read Ephesians, you know that isn't all that Paul wrote. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you Paul's version of the household codes in their entirety. And as I do, I want you to try and hear them with the knowledge that we just walked through. Hear them in the way these first century Ephesians would have heard them. Think about what each part would have meant for the men, the women, the children, and the slaves. Okay, so I want you to do do this with me. Close your eyes and imagine yourself there. I'm going to describe it to you. You're a first century Christian in and around the city of Ephesus. Things are not great for you. There's persecution by the Roman government. There's disease. There's harsh treatment. There's poverty. And unless you were a man of a certain class, you weren't even actually a legal person, according to the culture and laws of the land. You were property of the man that owned you. The one place you feel most human is in this little house, surrounded by your church family. Yeah, there are still hierarchies here, but somehow they feel less severe than they do outside of that little house. You were listening to one of the church leaders read a letter from your founding pastor, a guy named Paul. And he begins talking about these familiar household codes that have been used to oppress you if you were not a man of a certain class since the day you were born. But as the familiar household codes are echoed by Paul, you are struck by the unusual additions to them. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right away, if you're in this house, you know something is different. There is no mutual submission in your world, only submission to the male head of the house. You can already hear it in the first sentence. Paul is changing something. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. Now you're thinking, okay, um, there's a metaphor about submission here, Christ and the church. That's all new, but everything else seems basically the same. Maybe he's not really changing anything. And then you hear the next verse. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. Y'all, I cannot overemphasize how radical these verses would have been for a first century church. 
In fact, I imagine that the whole house would have started audibly murmuring, if not erupting in conversation as these things were read. This changes everything. It changes everything. He says husbands are supposed to, quote, love their wives. And y'all, this isn't just our our run-of-the-mill, average, everyday kind of love. If you've been around the church for a while, you probably know that most of the New Testament, including this letter, was written in Greek. And if you've been around the church for a long time, you probably know that Greek has four different words for love. They're almost always just translated love in our English Bibles, but knowing which love they're talking about can really help illuminate a passage like this for us. So the first one is called phileo. This is a sibling kind of love. It's a friendship. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. The second one is storge. This is a love that just comes naturally. It's something you can't help. It's like how you just love pizza, you know, or you just love your favorite sports team. It's just like, that's storge love. The third one is eros. It's where we get the word erotic. It's this is the love that based on attraction. It's, it's, it's fleeting. It can be misleading. We might call it lust. And then finally, the fourth, we have agape. This is the deepest and noblest kind of love. It is self-sacrificing. It is completely devoted to the subject to which it loves. This love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, unworthy. It's unconditional, self-sacrificing love. Can you guess which word is used when Paul says, husbands love your wives? Agape. This is the good news of Jesus turning a centuries-old household code on its head. He says, husbands, you don't lord over your wives. You lay down your lives for them. That changes everything. And if first-century husbands had any questions about what that should look like, Paul says, look no further than Jesus. Remember how he died? Remember how he, he gave his life on the cross for the church? That's how I want you to love your wife. I want you to die for her. I want you to give up everything for. I want you to leave everything you ever know, journey for three years. That's what Jesus did. That's not necessarily what you're supposed to do with your wife. But you are supposed to self-sacrifice, love her, lay down your life for her. And just in case first century husbands wanted to argue, Paul quotes some scripture back to them. Verse 31. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way the Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife, must agape his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husbands. Again, Paul says, again, just in case you missed it the first time, you are to agape your wives. And now he says that the wives are to respect their husbands. It's funny, y'all. Every time I've heard this passage used to to belittle or oppress women, it's always followed by some explanation, something like, well, well, that's just what the Bible says, okay? It's black and white. It's right there, Ephesians 5, 24. Wives, you're supposed to submit to your husbands in everything, no matter what. If you don't like it, you don't have a problem with me. You got a problem with God's word. That's just what it says. And yet, every time I've heard it used like that, I have never heard the same black and white interpretation used for husbands lay down your life for your wife. You ever heard anybody preach that? Like die for her. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to submit wives to your husband. You're supposed to respect him. 
But husbands, you're supposed to die for your wives. That's the literal reading. That's the black and white. Changes everything. There would have been an, an uproar in this little house church. They would have been uh, discussing this and, and talking about this, maybe even raising their voices about this. This changed centuries-old custom and law. This was revolutionary. And that's just the first category. Here's the second one. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on earth. Again, it seems like the normal household code. Like we're, we're back to the normal one for parents and kids. There's an Old Testament verse kind of thrown in there for good measure. But if your kid sitting in the house listening to this, not much has changed until you hear verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, caveat, hear me. This doesn't mean that we should let our two-year-olds make every single decision in our house, right? We are, we are legally and spiritually responsible for their well-being until they reach adulthood. But again, this is a huge shift from these old household codes. Children, especially female children, had no rights at all in first century household codes. They were property. But Paul gives specific instruction, and he gives it notice to fathers, the ones with all the power, to treat their kids well. Another huge change in tradition. But I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to what comes next. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Now it's the slave's turn. Now remember, these three household codes, these three categories, these divisions had existed forever. So if you were sitting in there and you were a master or a slave, you knew your turn was coming. He had just addressed husbands and wives. He had now just addressed parents and children. You knew this was coming. And after these first words from Paul, I bet masters would have breathed a little sigh of relief. Right? They were like, okay, it's, it's not going to be anything too crazy for us. And I bet slaves would have been thinking to themselves, I knew it was too good to be true. Women and children get some help from Jesus in these household codes, but not even God himself can change our lives and our condition. But then comes what is quite possibly the most radical verse in the entire New Testament. Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. He tells the masters to treat their slaves, quote, in the same way. That's the same way he just told the slaves to treat them. You hear that? That is unbelievably radical. Slaves, this is how you're supposed to obey your masters. Oh, masters, the same way is how you're supposed to treat your slaves. With deep respect and fear, serving them sincerely, trying to please them all the time. Why? Because Paul says, you guys are fake masters anyway. The real master is in heaven. 
and he is the most loving, grace-filled being to ever exist. In fact, he agaped you and me, no matter if we are master and slave, so much that he left heaven, put on flesh, and came to earth. He lived a perfect life, demonstrating what this radical equality in his kingdom is supposed to look like, and then he capped it all off by sacrificially dying for humanity. He died impartially for husband and wife, father and child, master and slave. He died for me and he died for you, no matter who you are or what you've done or what stage of life you are in. And if we have placed our faith in Jesus, he has given us his Holy Spirit and called us to a new and beautiful way of loving him and loving each other. And that way is mutual submission and sacrificial love. That's what he did And that's what he calls us to, mutual submission and sacrificial love. Whether you are in the 21st century sitting in the chairs this morning or you are sitting on the dirt floor of a house church in the first century, whether you are married or single, whether you are straight or gay, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are Jew or Gentile, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have been called to mutual submission and sacrificial love love. This is simply the result of Jesus, of the good news that he brings, the changes that he ushers in in his kingdom. Remember verse 21. Notice the first two words. He says, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he says, and further mutually submit. But the and further is important here because it means take everything that I've said before. This is the natural outworking of it. All the stuff that I've been talking about This is what it looks like when you put it into practice. If you were here last year, you remember what came before. It's Paul's explanation of how Jesus changes every part of our lives. It starts back in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore I, a prisoner serving for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Leading a life worthy of the calling we have been given by God through Jesus means Mutual submission. The good news of Jesus is dismantling the household codes of the first century and every notion we have of superiority or hierarchy in any of our relationships. It is dismantling that. It is destroying that. It's a revolution. Paul is explaining the kind of relationships Jesus calls us to, and he does it in the simplest terms. They are ones based on full equality for all, mutual submission. He says it plainly in his letter to the church in Galatia. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that some of you are thinking right now, but, but he didn't tell the masters to free their slaves, did he? He, he, said, he said treat them better, but he didn't say to free them, Right? Well, there's another important part of Scripture that I want to draw your attention to. Later, Paul wrote a letter to a friend named Philemon. At a little over 300 words, it's the third shortest book in the entire Bible. It's essentially a one-page letter from Paul instructing Philemon to free a slave named Onesimus, who had previously run away from him. Here's what it says. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, that's what Paul starts out by saying, I could tell you, you got to do this. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. 
It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him. He is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do not want, you do, you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Listen, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Y'all, that's it. There's this part. There's an introductory greeting. There's a conclusion where Paul is like, hey, Philemon, get a guest bed ready for me because I'm coming to see you soon. That's the whole letter. That is the entire book. It's not a broad theological commentary. It's not a history of the early church. It was put in the Bible for one solitary reason. That is to show that the good news of Jesus means absolute equality between everyone, especially in the relationships that society says are the most unequal, master and slave. The whole thing is in the Bible just for that. It's a random letter from one guy to another guy saying, you got to stop with slavery. These men are your brothers. Treat them as such. It's radical. Radical. The good news of Jesus says, free your slaves, stop oppressing your wives, quit treating your children like property, and sacrificially love everyone. The old household codes have been destroyed, and they have been replaced with a call to mutual submission. In every relationship, this is God's design, and it's actually always been God's design. It's not something new. It was new for the Ephesians, but it's not new for God. From the opening pages of the Bible, we see God promoting the full equality of humanity, starting with Adam and Eve. Y'all, it's only after the fall we see any relational hierarchy between them. And even then, it's not God's design. It's a result of their sin. Now, I'm not going to get up here and tell you what every marriage should look like, what roles in every relationship should look like. God has equipped all of us differently. We should be able to trust the people we are in relationship with to serve in areas where they have gifts as we serve in areas where we have gifts. But I will tell you that God's design for relationship is not hierarchy. I think that is plain in Scripture. God's design for relationship is not hierarchy. It's for mutual submission, and it's for sacrificial love. And I will tell you that if one person in the relationship is leading in every single area because of their gender or their race or their class, you are not abiding by God's design for relationship. That may be hard for you to hear, 
but I believe that is the truth of Scripture, and I believe that is what God is calling us to in our relationship. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to encourage you to take time this week and reflect on your relationships. Are you abiding by God's call to mutual submission? If you are in a safe relationship, talk to your spouse or your partner about what mutual submission looks like between you. And don't just do this haphazardly, like pick a time. If you've got kids, get a sitter or do it after they go to bed. Pick a time, sit down, and really talk to each other about this. Be vulnerable, be authentic, be open with each other. If you are, if you are in a safe relationship, I want you to do that this week. And I'm telling you, God will open up doors. It will open up relational connectivity that you never thought was possible between the two of you. If you have conversations like that. But I also want to say that if you are not in a safe relationship, please talk to someone who can help. There are professionals in our church. There are professionals all over this city who can fight for you, even when it feels like you can't fight for yourself. And if you don't feel safe going to someone you don't know or calling some number you've never called, I would love to talk with you. I would love to help however I can. I would love to connect you with someone if you want to be connected with. If you are not in a safe relationship, I will. I want you to get some help, and I want to be that help for you if you need it. We're going to wrap up this morning by asking this question. What would happen if we took the time and did the work to understand passages like these the way they were meant to be understood? What would happen if we truly believed that this book tells the story about the life-giving, freedom-providing person and work of Jesus Christ. I think it would change everything. I think that the church would start being known for the way that we radically love people, the way we sacrificially serve humanity. We would be on the front lines of fighting against hate and oppression instead of writing Christian defenses of slavery. We would be fighting for women's rights instead of telling them to stick to sex, supper, and submission. We would be a leading voice on equality for all instead of further marginalizing people who are different from us. And instead of just imagining what this could look like, this morning we're going to give you an opportunity, us, an opportunity to see a small picture of it. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. Then like every other week in this series, we're going to end with communion and with a hymn. And I'm going to explain how we're going to do it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the incredible courage of someone like Paul, who even from prison, even from a Roman prison, was writing revolutionary things to culture and law, promoting the way that you love and call us to love each other telling us about mutual submission, about sacrificial love, and pointing us all back to your son Jesus, who by his Holy Spirit within us makes it all possible. I pray that we would let that spirit, your spirit in us, lead in every relationship. That we would love you and we would love each other fully and completely and by submitting to each other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.